welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them. It's my uh, privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of a book titled Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and now on TV on CNBC, Fox Business, and other major media outlets. In my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host and founder, Bala Afshar. Um, we're, he's one of the top followers on Twitter for CMOs, CIOs, but more importantly, for excellent business advice. He's an author himself. He's also one of the top evangelists in the world on technology, a global speaker and keynote uh, and panelist and moderator, and also on TV himself. But this show is really not about us. This show is really about our awesome guests, what they're doing, how they're changing the world, the transformation that's ahead of us. So who do we have today? Ray, it's our privilege to have Tim O'Keefe, Chief Executive Officer at Simmons Industries as our first guest. As CEO and part of the third generation family ownership of Simmons Industries, Tim is leading Simmons Evolution from a mechanical plumbing manufacturer to a digital water solution provider. Tim's career started at Simmons as an information analyst in 2002. He was then appointed uh, director of design where the team created custom products for world-renowned properties that led to a triple-digit KR business growth. In 2008, Tim was uh, promoted to the role of executive vice president where he was responsible for day-to-day -day activities of sales, operations, engineering, and marketing. Two years later, uh, Tim was appointed in his current role as chief executive officer of Simmons. Most recently, he's led the development and the launch of Simmons Water Management, a revolutionary platform that changes how properties manage their water to drive lower cost and increase revenue. I met Tim several years ago, and we were having these intense, in-depth discussions about Internet of Things. All along, I'm thinking he's a scientist, he's a futurist, he's an architect, and he says, hello, I'm a CEO of an 80-year-old plumbing company, which blew me away. Tim is an active member of YPO, Abundance 360, and Constellation Research Business Transformation 150. You can follow his work on Twitter at T-O-Keefe, K-E-E-F-F-E 71. Welcome, Tim, to the Shrub TV. Thanks, Vala. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. This has been awesome. I mean, we've been following your journey as you've been building this. So, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, what is you know, how'd you get here, right? And get a little overview of the Simmons water management and really why customers are really looking for something like this, right? In the transformation conversation. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, as, as you said in the intro, we're a third generation family business. Uh, we're your typical plumbing manufacturer. So we make all the things that are metal in your bathroom, faucets, showers, accessories, and controllers in the basement. So about five, seven years ago, we started to build out an innovation program and really try to understand what kind of value we could create for our customers. And we focused on the hospitality segment first because those customers have been more adept at adopting new innovative technologies and really driving value for their customers. And what we found after about a year of really digging into the root causes of their issues and finding out what the jobs to be done to deliver on their mission was that uh, at the end of the day, water was causing issues for them. It was not a positive situation. 
Uh, and really what it stems from was that water is really a black box. So if you think about it, when an issue occurred, uh, they heard about it and they had to react to it to try to fix it. And they're always up against it every time. Uh, and most importantly, the alert that they got that the system broke was from their guest, which is the worst of all situations. The person who pays the bill was alerting them. So this black box was impacting them and, and causing them for degradation of profits and revenues and time, as well as hurting their guest experience and their customer experience. So we built a system of software, uh, sensors and software that literally helps them understand what's going on with their water management system. So it helps them deliver on the guest experience to ensure that guest gets hot water and, and the right shower to reduce operational expenses. And finally, and probably most importantly, avoid, avoid like rogue water events that have a huge detrimental impact on the, on the hotel. Wow. And, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, like every, almost every hotel I check in, I see your stuff there. Um, and for this, what you're really trying to do is trying to improve that experience from a hospitality perspective. But also, I mean, you're, you're doing something bigger. It's, it's more than just, you know, the, the customer experience. There's water management here, right, in the back end that people really don't realize. I mean, what kind of problems do, you know, institutions typically face? Yeah, so it's a great question. So if you think about it, a building comes out to sort of two core elements. They have the mechanical room where all the water is delivered up into the building, into the rooms. Then they have the risers in return. So imagine those as being the roads that the water travels on. And so what we found is that some folks had solutions that focused on the mechanical room, which is where the water is you know, developed and heated and brought into the building. But no one had a solution that looked at the whole building or a holistic platform that was really trying to understand what happened when it left the mechanical room or went up into the building. And that's what we've achieved. So what we did is we said we're going to put sensors on the risers, the returns, and the mechanical room to use all those different relationships between where the water is delivered and brought into the building and then how it's delivered up to the guest or to the room. And that's the real problem is really actually when it leaves the mechanical room. You know, if you said, geez, my temperature is uh, you know, 104 degrees in the mechanical room, it's like, well, great, but the guest upstairs is having a bad day and thus you're reimbursing uh, them for that bad shower. So it's a, it's a huge problem. It, it comes out to be in the top five of almost every hotel complaint survey. Uh, so it's a real driver of negative profitability. Wow. So Tim, you know, uh, for someone like yourself that has an analytical background, a design background, and obviously strong business acumen where you recognize very early on that we're now in an experience-led economy. And I will switch a hotel from one to another if my water pressure is low or the temperature is not where I want it to be. So there's so many more choices and options uh, that, that you know, the consumer today uh, will, will define and, 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 and give their money to companies that consistently deliver a good experience. How did you, or talk to us about how you take your vision, again, I consider you like a CEO that's a futurist. How did you convince your stakeholders, again, in a company that's a, you know, a digital immigrant company, you weren't born in the cloud, you weren't born mobile, you weren't born social, <laughs> um, to really think about data and sensors and going from, reactive to proactive to even building your anticipatory muscle where you're designing for serviceability before the paying customers tapping you on the shoulder asking for help. How did you go about really creating this mindset in your company? Yeah, I, I would say that it's a journey, uh, not to sound like using a cliche or anything, but at the end of the day, I think it takes sort of two things, perseverance and curiosity. You know, along the way, there's going to be plenty of people that 
will tell you, you know, you can't do this and it'll never work. And some of those people are on your team and that's okay. You know, the one of the things I've learned along the way is to have more patience because not everyone sees it the same way I see it. And uh, I think early on, I'm like, come on, it's the greatest idea of all time. You guys got to jump on board with this. But the perseverance is really to take each and every time you run into one of those roadblocks or someone says you can't do it and to keep pushing on through. And if you can maintain that level of passion and you can keep driving it, eventually as you prove it out, going from a proof of concept into sort of selling the first customer, you can really start to get the momentum. And the curiosity, it's really, it's kind of almost like one of our core values. It's to try to remain curious on, on day, you know, right now I've worked on this for seven years. So uh, on the seventh year, as much as day one, you know, how curious you were when you came up with the original idea and to try to instill that into your team. Because if, if you can remain curious, what's really cool about this is once you get going, the iteration and the velocity of change of the ideas going from a traditional manufacturer of plumbing products to a sort of digital and software and solutions provider, the pace of change is much faster. What Ray references in his book and what you guys talk about all the time, our ability now to make a change to this system and deliver a new value or a new feature to our customer is unbelievable. And so once you get that momentum, you really have it, but I will say early on, there's plenty of doubters along the way. Um, you know, I was just presenting a couple of weeks ago in Tampa and some guy said, you know, I really don't think you're going to be able to do all this with AI and all these other things. And I said, you know, I really appreciate your support, but we're going to keep at it. And, you know, we'll come back and we'll show you how it works. So, you know, I didn't dispute it because it, all feedback is a gift. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, in Moneyball, uh, the last line towards the end of the movie, the first through the wall is always the bloodiest. So. <laughs> What you're doing is <laughs> truly disruptive thinking. So expect those bruises along the way. Yeah, yeah, curiosity and perseverance, absolutely. Those are definitely all true. And actually, you know, but you started much earlier, right? I mean, you've been working at this in iterations, right? You had the innovation lab, which I had a chance to visit in Braintree. And that's pretty interesting in terms of how you work. I mean, this isn't, you know, I mean, the, the way you're approaching this has elements of from design thinking all the way to business model design. I mean, you've explored all different types of agencies. You've worked with all different types of consulting firms. I mean, you've really pulled together multiple disciplines together. Uh, how do you convince, like how do other CEOs convince like their boards and their teams that this is a great idea and, and get them along? Because on the board end, I mean, you're typically dealing with, you know, I mean, you don't always have patient shareholders. And on your team side, you don't always have the skill sets in place. How did you create that balance? Yeah, I think, you know, I had to learn, like I said earlier, patience, because, you know, I just assume everyone jump in and, and come along with it. Um, I've been fortunate to have a partner in crime that's managed this innovation program from day one with me. She still actually worked with me, which is amazing in, in that regard, because I'm a little bit crazy. But having that patience and understanding where you're getting that feedback or that pushback was key. And I think the second thing is kind of like you know, Jim Collins talks a lot about firing bullets versus cannonballs. You know, we've fired a lot of bullets and we've learned a lot. And, you know, I've run through that wall and hit my head. Um, we have pivoted. You know, I remember being in a startup in 1999. There was no such thing as pivot. It was called, let's stay in business. So let's move to the next. <laughs> so, you know, we started off with a product that was in the room. And today we're looking at a holistic water management platform. So we have kind of continuously taken those iterations and learned from them. I think that was key, whether it was working with one firm or the next, you know, we'd switch firms. That wasn't, you know, really their fault. It was just us trying to figure out what value we could create. And it's, you know, we're in the earliest days. It's, it's, there's so much uncertainty and you have to be uncomfortable, comfortable being uncomfortable and really just embrace it. And so 
you know, to me, it was just about firing those smaller shots, getting that feedback, and then understanding what you could move forward with, and then using that to get even more learnings. Because um, if we had made one big bet and launched, uh, it would have been ugly. But that, that's really the key learnings, is take those small shots and continue to iterate off of them. Tim, tell us about the, this water management system. Um, you know, how do you speak to a, you know, um, an operational executive at some of these world-renowned establishments that you've installed your platform? Where, how do you start the conversation and, and give them a sense of what it is that you bring to the table that's, that's unique in the industry? Yeah, so what we're trying to do and what we're saying to our customers is that we want to take water off your plate. So the future vision would be water as a service, and I can go into that in a little bit. But um, really, when you think about it, what we're trying to do is take something that's a problem for them today and turn it into something that doesn't become a problem, but actually is positive. So it's delivering on that guest experience. It's reducing your operational cost. It's avoiding rogue events. You know, there's a lot of events that occur in these buildings, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's the worst day you could ever imagine. It's like, happened twice this year you know the, the mechanical room shuts down or there's a flood in the mechanical room or there's just lots of different things that everyone has to jump to kind of react to and that just wastes a ton of money so there's a lot of different audiences we talk to we talk to owner developers and they can see it but they really obviously have a heavy lens towards roi you talk to the chief engineer and that gm that are sitting in that hotel every day they get it right away because they know the challenges they face just like anyone who's day-to-day -day and delivering on that value and having to watch that bottom line, they know if they can take this off their plate, they can really drive the guest experience in other ways. So that engineer that was deployed to fix water issues is now deployed fixing a, a guest experience issue or improving upon the guest experience. So it's, it has this almost exponential impact. It's taking that cost down and, and smoothing out your organization, but also redeploying those assets that are running in your hotel to really deliver a great experience. And that's, that's just hotels. We started to think about healthcare. We started to think about schools, multifamily, um, you know, co-location sites and server farms. You know, think of all the air conditioning going into those sites. So there's just an, a, tons of opportunity for this. Tim, every executive that I have the privilege of meeting with is thinking about and shaping and delivering a narrative that has sustainability uh, as a core value. So when I think of water management, not only the pressure, temperature, and serviceability, but also the ability to conserve water usage in order to have a more healthier, greener, more sustainable uh, environment. Do you find that for, in the hospitality space, are the executives mindful of differentiating their value proposition to their guests in terms of managing water so that it, we're not as wasteful as, as we are today? And perhaps through loyalty systems or some sort of recognition, encouraging better use and perhaps minimal consumption of water rather than just turning on the shower for 10 minutes before you use it. Yeah. Uh, and the wasteful use of water that, that most of us, uh, you know, recognize today. Yeah, I would say that it's a real focus of the brands. So the Marriott's, the Hyatt's, the Hilton's, they really want to establish themselves as being green leaders because that's their customer, what their customer wants, whether it's the younger generation or, or today. I would say that owner developers see the value of, of water savings, but in some areas, the water savings, the dollars are just aren't there. But one of the things we've noticed with the system, again, it's, it's putting centers in the mechanical room, the risers and the returns is that we've seen a couple of things, a huge waste of BTUs, so energy. So people are heating water 10, 20 and 30 degrees higher than they need to. And once you optimize the system, 
that energy comes right back to you. So it's just, it's energy going out the door. The second is that when you can't deliver the hot water at the right moment in time to the customer, that customer is just going to leave it on. And you're just wasting gallons upon gallons. So we have one customer in Boston for six months. It was taking 10 minutes to deliver to one section of the hotel. That's six months of wasted water, six months of wasted BTUs. And so we're seeing a lot of those benefits and we're starting to calculate them out and they are having real world impact. And when you start to think about that at a hundred hotels, a thousand hotels, and you know, the data will be massive in terms of the impact. Yeah. And it's just, at the end of the day, it's really about optimizing and using intelligence. You know, we firmly believe here that products should do more for you than you do for them. And so the only way we can do that is to make the product intelligent. You can't, leave a pipe or a valve and, and think a mechanical valve is going to tell you what to do. If we can bring intelligence and information to those products, we can create more value and thus create better operations and then impact the environment positively. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, so what's the technology here, right? You've got sensors in place. You've got something probably doing some level of AI or something analytics in the background, but tell us a little bit more about what that does and, and what, yeah. what, are, what are people do to install this? Yeah, sure. So a couple of key things we learned on the install starting off right away was a hotel is not going to shut off their water system to allow us to put our sensors in. So it had to be non-invasive. And that's great. We can go into existing buildings, we can go to new construction. The second was Wi-Fi is a big issue for them. We are delivering Wi-Fi to your customer. That's important to the customer. So they did not want us on their network. So we provide our own proprietary Simmons connection gateway running on LoRa. And we have sensors, which basically are a, a CPU and then a, a, a cable that attaches to the pipe. So it attaches non-invasively and we measure that temperature every 10 seconds. We also put in that CPU to take advantage of future features, uh, a humidity sensor and an ambient temperature sensor. I won't get into all the specifics of it, but what you can imagine is when you triangulate those three pieces of data, you can really come up with anomalies that no one in the world's ever seen before when you start to apply AI to that it's even better. So those sensors are attached to the risers, returns, and then in a typical hotel in the mechanical room, you might have 10 to 15 of them. So those are all the temperature sensors. And they're not just measuring temperature. They're predicting anomalies of, of the source of water. Is it coming at the right time? Is it flowing through? Uh, do we have an issue with one, one section of the building? And then in the mechanical room as well, we provide a leak detection system because what we've seen is there's large capex in, the, in those rooms, huge machines that deliver the water, the pumps, the controllers. And so if you have a leak in there, you can't shut things off. It shuts the whole building off. And so what we do is we detect a leak within one minute and send an alert to you. And we've seen just in our five POCs in Boston, uh, a year ago, it happened in three of the five. We're now in 38 hotels in Boston. It is one of the bigger uh, alerts we get. Uh, so we have been installing since May 1. We have 38 hotels actively on the system, over 7,000 rooms wow. just in the Boston market. So we're, we're focused on the Boston market just to get the first initial launch right, to get the post-installation service down. And then we're going to go out nationally in, in November, December timeframe. Now, this spawns off a whole bunch of other business models, right? Because what you're able to do now is you're doing the operational efficiency, you're doing remote monitoring and diagnostics, right? Yep. And at some point you can get to the point where we're talking about water as a service. So let's yeah. go deep a little bit on the water as a service and what that means. And then we'll talk a little bit about, you know, your, your personal journey here. So as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, if you think about it really, um, whether it's a vision or purpose, so we, we consider ourselves to be a purpose driven company and at Simmons, our purpose is to reimagine how water is used and managed 
So what does that mean? Like how can we make water as a service? So in this first version, it's informative. This is a piece of information that comes in and creates an insight, which creates an action that lowers operational costs. It saves water, energy, delivers a guest experience, like I said. A next version could take active control. So you could control those same systems with your phone or your desktop or from a virtual control center. So an ownership group could like monitor their water from a, a hub. And then finally, if you sort of think about it, we could evolve into an autonomous water management system where you would have dynamic controllers that are, that are connected and dynamic pumps and the risers and returns, as well as dynamic valves, all talking to each other and linked to each other. And based on that, they're using the history and the data and the AI without human intervention, intervention just running the water at the optimal speed, at the optimal temperature, and delivering what the guest needs or the user needs. So that's kind of our evolution. When we think about water as a service, that's the technology. We could then go out and start to buy water on behalf of our customers. And by buying the water, we could aggregate all that water spend up, get the price reduced for them, transparently show it to them, and just deliver water as a service. They would just pay us a monthly fee that would come with the technology, the alerts, the system, the AI, and the water being bundled. And if you think about it, that's an ultimate solution for an owner that says, I never have to think about water again because Simmons is taking care of it. That is incredible. And I'm telling you, if you're following, you know, the World Economic Forum and all of the news and facts and forecasts regarding water scarcity, uh, yeah. the impact of climate change, uh, there are uh, research papers that are being uh, discussed widely that the future wars will be because of water. Uh, yeah. the, the scarcity of water and the, and the negative impact in, uh, in, in North America, in Africa, in Asia. Um, yeah. and again, there's news every day about, I mean, there's you know, one of the most technologically sound cities in, in India right now has incredible water scarcity where they're shipping water to Chennai uh, in trains uh, at incredible volumes and they still cannot meet the demands of the, of the citizen population. So being able to optimally manage um, water distribution, leveraging machine learning and, and AI capabilities in this dynamic setting that you're talking about is, is it, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a necessity. It's, yeah. it's, it's not a luxury. It's, it's yeah. you need to be thinking about it. Yeah, I'll just play off of that and say, you know, I like to use a phrase and it, and it ties to our purpose. Like I said earlier, Simmons' purpose is to reimagine how people use and manage water. And so when you think about that, I like to say local impact global water. So what does that mean? So we're in North America, we're rolling out this in the Boston market. So a hotel improves its situation in the Boston market. They've reduced energy costs, reduced water, they're saving money for their company. That engineer has had an impact locally, but it obviously affects globally. That impact will also be felt globally because what we're really excited to announce, we haven't settled on uh, the organization yet, but we're going to take a portion of our profits and donate them to organizations bringing clean water to the developing world. So think about it again, that that local customer is having an impact on water, but at the same time impacting water globally because that profitability and that donation could bring water to uh, create a well for 250 people that never had clean water, all tying back to our purpose to radically reimagine how water is used and managed. So we're, we're trying to think about this to not just be the technology platform and, uh, and the ability to create efficiencies, but to have it tie it together globally. We're not a global company today. Uh, in the future, we could be. And I you know when talking to Ray, he's like, why are you here? Why aren't you there? I mean, Ray's always we we fly around the world. So. You know what? You know, this has been amazing. Yeah, I was oh, go ahead, Ari. 
700 million people, that's twice the population of the U.S., yeah. not have access to clean drinking water. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you read the Gates Notes Foundation from Bill Gates this week, you know, a billion people don't have access to electricity. So yeah. you know, we're in the Boston market. We're incredibly fortunate yeah. to, you know, uh, to, to not think about these things as, 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 uh, as, as yeah. issues. But frankly, you know, uh, you know one-tenth of humanity doesn't have access to clean water. 700 million and 7.7 7, 7 billion on Earth. So yeah, I mean, these, these are real important issues. And it takes forward-looking CEOs that manage purposeful-oriented uh, culture and companies to, to contribute to betterment of society. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. Cool. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, Tim. I mean, this has been amazing. I mean, to, to watch the journey. I mean, to, to really pull people together around this. I mean, you're in an old line industry that you're transforming at a digital pace, and uh, definitely someone that a lot of folks would love to talk to and, and learn from. So. But uh, real quick, last question on my other end, my end really is, you know, as people are thinking about business transformation, you talked about patience being an important skill set, um, but there, there are other things as well that people don't really, I mean, it, people don't really realize when they embark on an effort like this. You started this six to seven years ago when, when the technology wasn't as good. You started yeah. when, you know, when a lot of the business models weren't even well understood, right? And, and now you've like, you know, finally got it to a point where you're ready, you've got the launch out, you've got the pilots in place, you're happy. I mean, if, if people are starting this process, other than patience, what else would you tell them? Yeah, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to, to leap forward and try this because look, we're, we're a small, you know, family business in, in the New England market and we're a Northeast company. We sell internationally around 2%. So, you know, if we can go out and, and try to drive this kind of change, I think it's possible for anyone. And I think one of the things I've learned along the way of knowing you guys for the last five to seven years is the pace of technology I always knew would kind of come along with us and help us develop these things. What I'm astounded by is that it was much faster than I thought and that the systems are much more active and capable now than they were a year ago, three years ago. And so I would say to anyone exploring this, you know, the two things you have to have are just the ability to embrace uncertainty and be comfortable being uncomfortable and having your team feel that way. Because if you can encourage them to make mistakes, if you can encourage them to go out there and try things, uh, you'll really come up with a, a, some, some amazing value. I, I think um, one of the quotes I like to use, and my team will probably be a little mad at using this, but Willy Wonka says, um, you know, I hate the suspense or the suspense is killing me. I hope it continues. It's a contrast, but you do have to be able to embrace that suspense because while you're doing this, it's going to be uncertain. It's going to not, it's not going to feel great. And, and so you have to embrace that suspense and just move to the next thing and move to the next thing. So I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to take the leap because the technology will help you get there. And if you can embrace uncertainty and you can be comfortable being uncomfortable, you'll get there eventually. Terrific advice. Wow, we're here. Wise words from Tim O'Keefe, Chief Executive Officer at Simmons Industries. You can follow him at T O'Keefe, K E F F E 71 on Twitter. And of course, you're listening to us coast to coast here, as well as internationally on podcasts on Disrupt TV Show. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Congratulations. What an extraordinary CEO. Um, yeah, I remember Ray talking to him years ago. And again, before I knew his role and function, I really thought I was talking to an analyst and a technologist. So it's, uh, it's pretty awesome to see. And his company was founded in 1939, so an 80-year-old company. And he is uh, you know, well on his way uh, uh, in terms of trailblazing, digital transformation. Speaking of a trailblazer and one of our you favorite uh, guests, 
to come back to the Shrub TV. We are here with Heather Clancy, Editorial Director at Green Biz Group. Heather is an award-winning journalist specializing in transformative technology and innovation and sustainability. Great segue after talking to Tim. Heather is the co-author of Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different. Uh, this is an Amazon category queen for entrepreneurship and small business. Uh, as editorial director of GreenBiz, Heather covers the role of technology in enabling clean energy, sustainable business strategy, and low carbon economy. You can follow Heather on Twitter at GreenTechLady, G-R-E-N-T-E-C-H-L-A-D-Y. Welcome back, Heather, to the Shrub TV. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Great. Great now that you're here. Great. <laughs> I've been here the whole time lurking. What do you think of Tim? I mean, that, that's pretty cool. A plumbing, plumbing company. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is that so many of the things that we need to do for sustainability are so uh, basic, you know? I mean, it's the plumbing, it's the grid, it's the, it, you know, it's, and it's, and that's what makes it so difficult because it's systemic, right? Um, but I, I love, I, I love the, um, the, the practical reality of, of what he was saying on, you know, you, you want to do this, but you can't disrupt um, you can't make it inconvenient. Um, I, I was listening with interest to the the, the comments about temperature, and because uh, I'm like I'm like one of these people that I really need a hot shower, and and but I'm also guilty of the uh, you know you you turn it on and it's not coming on, then you okay you're like okay let's run the sink too to see if it can like make it hotter. I've, I've been there so many times. You know how that happens, and you're like why did it come up now? Because the sink is anyway. So I think it's. Um, I think it's it's wonderful, and 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 the 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 way you make it um, transparent and behind the scenes, I think, is also super important. So if it's just automated to be optimized, no one really notices. They don't have to do anything. Um, if they want to override the setting, they're gonna. But probably, if it's not bothering them, they won't do anything. So I I, I appreciate what they're doing and. Your comments about the age of the company, I think were really profound because if you look at some of the, the organizations that are actually having a big impact and, and trying to make themselves more sustainable, there, a lot of them have been around for decades. And that sort of thinking is built into, the, the sort of constant evolution is built into their management capabilities, which, which you know, if you look at startups versus can an established company make this sustainability transition, they're, the ones that have been around and have that sort of management discipline built into place are, are actually probably going to be pretty darn successful if they're focused on it, if they make it part of their culture. I think that's, um, you know, and, and I, I'll, I'll embarrass you, Vala, by saying, like, if it's part of the culture, Salesforce has made this part of the culture. And if it's part of the culture, it's going to happen. Everyone has to be bought in from employee to customer. So I'm sorry, I kind of went on a total tangent, but, but that's what I do. And that's why you asked me back. <laughs> I wonder like, if, if Tim wasn't the CEO, could he bring that culture of sustainability and no. Yeah, you know. No, no. And, and that's the that's other point, important. And I'll just say, I'll say to you, uh, um, that one of the reasons, and again, I don't want to parachute, you, but your company, Salesforce happens to be particularly effective at this. And part of it is because their CEO is totally bought in. Um, Unilever made really important strides. Yeah. He was bought in and talked about it. 
Mars is, is focusing on completely making this part of their culture and the CEOs bought in. You have to have a, a C-suite champion. If it's not the CEO, maybe it's the CFO, which is really important too, by the way. Um, I see very, I mean, there's so many really, really effective chief sustainability officers that have done a lot for their companies and made a lot of important progress in certain elements because they've gone to the right C-suite champion. But the, the companies that kind of have made it part of their ethos and thinking are the ones that I personally believe are, it's gonna be embedded, right? It can't be a separate function. If it's over on the side, then it's never gonna get the proper attention at the operational level that it needs to have. So okay. at the very least in the C-suite, it has to have support. The CEO is, is a, just a bonus, you know, if they're, if they're out yeah. there talking about it. And, and talking definitely. about it not just because it's a good marketing point, right. Right. you know? So Definitely a great, definitely a great case study here at some point if you want to connect with them. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But uh, let's talk about Kearney Point. You're talking about this green infrastructure that's <laughs> happening next door to you. I was actually up here in Montana. I actually saw Platinum Leeds building go up. Um, that they, they launched here at Montana State University, uh, where they basically put up an engineering building with platinum LEED certification in a very cold weather climate. So okay. kind of interesting. This to is see. Carney Point. Carney Point. Carney Point in New Jersey. Carney What's going Point. on there? Yeah, I know. It's, I have to ask how to pronounce it too. But Carney, New Jersey. So Carney Point in New Jersey is a, uh, a site that used to be the location of a historic shipyard. So I can't remember the name of the company right now, but one of the big steel U.S. sort of steel companies um, have this site. It's about 130 acres on the Hackensack River um, in a lovely place of an industrial district of Kearney, um, which is very near Jersey City, Newark, sort of on the, the water system that, um, that was so important for the industrial activities in New Jersey. And um, they used to build ships there. I mean, it was, I think, at one point, it was like five in a week. I mean, it was just the most important shipyard for the United wow. States, uh, established in World War I, um, really hit its peak in World War II. And then as shipbuilding kind of moved offshore, if you will, became um, um, much less relevant and, and sort of eventually found its way into recycling ships. So what, what better use of a facility uh, to, that made ships that's kind of on the way out than to dismantle ships? So, um, and that was in, so I'm, just for perspective, this, this site is, uh, has been established about 100 years ago. So it was in 1917. Um, in the 60s, a company called Hugo New, it's a real estate developer in New Jersey, privately held, bought this site. And they originally did a lot of recycling on the site. They were involved with the dismantling and so forth. Um, and then kind of moved, as a lot of the New Jersey industrial sites did, into uh, warehousing and distribution. Sort of like kind of a, you know, very low, key, you know, profitable, but low key business, not a lot of jobs and so forth. So this site kind of became... Um, you know, kind of fell, fell into disrepair, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, back, it wasn't as important in the area, not as many jobs and so forth. And then Sandy happened. So Superstorm Sandy, um, 2012, completely whacked the site. So like there was a, a, a liquor distribution uh, warehouse there, and it was like $100 million worth of bottles floating around in the river. It's, it sounds, I'm like, I'm not trying to make a joke, but it's, it's like, it's not funny because that, that, that company lost a lot of money, but the, That's crazy. <laughs> the management of the company said, okay, Hugo New said, whoa, this is just not sustainable. We're on this river. We, the sea, the, the not sea level, but the water levels are rising. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's, 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 
this is going to happen more often. We just, we know, um, forget the cause, this is happening. Water levels are rising, they're, they're more unpredictable. So the, the management of this company, um, and it's led right now by a woman named Wendy New, decided to completely rethink the site. So it's like this basic, it's this wonderful case study, what, what, we, what we would call adaptive infrastructure or green infrastructure. So they're completely rethinking the site. They're building sort of a seawall and living um, like natural wetlands around it to protect Wonderful. it from the flooding. They're building it up. So they're pointing soil back. They're pulling the buildings back from the, the shore. They're putting green space all over. So it's becoming, becoming like a sponge. So those are the natural things they're doing. They're also uh, experimenting with this really incredible stormwater management system. Um, there's a company called, I think it's Abtech. Um, it's like, a, it's like a, a sponge, right? So it takes the water, um, it, 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 ha it handles it in a different way than, than other systems. It pulls out the, um, and this is important for a site like this, it pulls out contaminants. So metals and other pathogens. Heavy metals, lead. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and so this, 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 this is a pretty visionary um, uh, you know, way to approach something. Like basically, they're and they're taking buildings off the site. So like you could, after a disaster like this, you could think, you could, you could understand this company saying, oh, we got to get a be better money out of all these buildings, you know, and just cramming tenants in there. But these, this organization is pulling back. It's taking buildings out of commission. It's completely rethinking the ones that are there, turning them into really cool office spaces. Um, and it's really being very careful about the tenants. Like it's, if you're a tenant that doesn't have sustainability, uh, a company that doesn't have sustainability at your, at your core, you might not get a lease there. So they're, they're prioritizing uh, vertical farms. There's a, a laundry facility there they were talking about. It's like a commercial laundry. It uses like something like 20% of the water that other companies use. Um, so they're doing this as a private sector entity, but one of the most really fascinating things is they're also working with the public sector. So they've managed to get grant money from the federal uh, some one of the federal programs that $3 million to help with a road that leads in and out of this site that really needs to be updated. It's great for the community. It's great for um, them, right? Because for their tenants, it's going to make it easier for them to attract tenants to this area. So for, from their perspective, it's going to be a, um, an investment. Um, and then the other thing that they're doing that's pretty cool is that they're, um, they're going to probably bring back about 10,000 jobs to the site, they're thinking. Um, at, the, at its peak, this, this particular location had about 30,000 jobs. So they're not going to get up to that point. That but was a big U.S. steel. It was a big U.S. steel location. It was yeah. a big U.S. steel location. But I mean, if you think about it, all, um, and, and one of the really cool things they did was they, they hired a former EPA official to help them navigate the public sector possibilities. Um, her name is Dominique Luckenhoff. And she's got a real good background in sort of the urban um, economic, uh, you know, inclusion issues and, and the programs that can, can come up to help uh, support a project like this. So it's just this wonderful model of public-private private, uh, uh, partnership and cooperation. It's certainly just starting. They only have one of the buildings in commission, if you will. Um, but but it's, it's just a wonderful I, uh, demonstration of, different sort of thinking of, of sustainable thinking, right? They're thinking for the long term. They're not just focused on, hey, how can we cram how many, these many, you know, more tenants into this building? So anyway, it's just a, uh, and I love that it's in New Jersey because there's so many 
areas in New Jersey that, that are, they have, they have these great possibilities. I mean, Newark, I, I don't know if you know this, but the, um, a couple of the big vertical farm companies are in Newark and have oh, been yeah. quite a few investments there. So um, the extent to which you can take a, in, a, an urban uh, climate, if you will, and refresh it and, and nurture it and bring it to a place where maybe it was de decades ago, but you know, it hasn't been for a while. I think that's so important. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of opportunities, right? Especially in, in urban areas where you also have food deserts uh, to mm -hmm. do the work. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You farm yeah. the table, you're closing that gap on the food deserts. You're also creating opportunities for creating new skill sets as well as, uh, you know, jobs in areas that would, would have been probably different types of empowerment zones and uh, really creating new skill sets. Well, but yeah, so this is an opportunity zone. So they are taking advantage of that. Pro I don't know if that's the right term. They're using that program. Um, but yeah, the, to your point, the food systems around these cities, um, which is why these vertical farms are there, you want the, the food to be distributed locally. These things are going to build on a regional basis. You don't want I mean, a vertical farm isn't going to ship its stuff across the country. It's going to ship to the food deserts in its own city and help provide options that, that these, the uh, citizens there and the, the residents didn't otherwise have. So Absolutely. I was uh, a couple of days ago in New York City for their Samsung um, new product launch event. The uh, phone, the foldable, is it phone? Yeah, it was, it was the Galaxy Unpacked event. So it was a new phone, a new tablet, new uh, laptop, a bunch, bunch of new products, uh, really, really incredible technology and innovation. But at the event, um, you know, as the president of Samsung is talking about all these incredible new uh, uh, innovation, uh, produced by Samsung, there was a strong reference and fair amount of time allocated to the United Nations Sustainable Sustainability uh, Development Goals SD, SDGs, and and they talked about and you know for, for, I would think most people in the audience uh, not maybe not aware of the you know the seventeen dimensions of sustainability as defined by the UN, and uh, so Samsung talked about you know how they're using that framework to ensure that, that they're producing products with sustainability in mind, mm -hmm. and revealed an app that allows them to measure outcomes across mm -hmm. these dimensions. How has the narrative, and by the way, it's not the first time that I've heard a company executive talk about on reference to UN framework. So I'm wondering how, how, how much has the narrative changed over the last two, three years when companies discuss sustainability and do it in a very rich, very robust manner. Um, it, it, do you see that more and more where, as you mentioned, it mm -hmm. has a core value. It can't just be a poster or a marketing gimmick. You really have to measure outcomes and show to your stakeholders that this is a North Star that you're following as you deliver new products and services. Right, so it is definitely a North Star and I think you're gonna hear more about it because a lot of, if you think about it, a lot of the companies had 2020 goals set, so they're they're reaching them or not reaching them and they're coming out with new ones. So um, I've seen them pegged to 2025 and 2030. 2030 is, is the, 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 the landmark, the, the milestone year for the sustainable development goals. Um, and so when they were approved and, and blessed, whatever you wanna call it, um, there were quite a few companies that sort of started talking about, yeah, we're gonna use them, um, but not, many companies figured out a way to do so. Like they'd be like, they kind of would point to a few goals and say, 
yeah, we can do this poverty one and we can do this um, uh, inclusion one and the women and, 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 and girls and there's and the, uh, access, access to electricity, right? Affordable access to water, what sanitary water conditions, they're all part, they're all part of them. I mean, we've all, we've talked about these topics. Um, but not a lot of companies yet have a way to really demonstrate it to their, if their stakeholders, if you will, particularly their, um, their investing stakeholders. Uh, one example of a company that has done a pretty good job, although I have to, I'm, I, I will fully disclose, I haven't talked to them about it in a little while, was MasterCard. Um, right when they came, first came out, started talking about specific services, right? Uh, so business opportunities and new revenue opportunities tied to certain of the goals, like the women, I think in particular women and girls and providing credit schemes in different emerging economies that would help these people become entrepreneurs and, and add to the economy and, and create an ecosystem that could be uh, ripe for, for future investment. So that's a great example of a wonderfully holistic, uh, it's, a, it's a really well integrated thought process. Um, I think you will st start to see more of, of that talking. Um, I actually haven't really heard a lot about the tech companies. IBM, I, I just literally got um, something from IBM last week. They went through all of their existing sustainability goals. Because if you think about it, companies like IBM have had sustainability on their agenda for decades. I mean, I think they were the, I think they were the first one to publish a, 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 like a corporate social responsibility. A, a, yeah, they were one you know, of the early ones, yeah. Uh, they were definitely one of the early ones, if not the first one. I mean, like they've literally, I think they just published their like 29th. I mean, hey, <laughs> that's a lot. Of, hey, good, good on you, right? Um, but they went through and said, okay, these, this framework is, this, this is a public framework. It's, it's what countries are working towards. How, where do we, like, where do we stack up against? And they just published a whole thing where they went through and, kind of mapped themselves to each of the goals and talked about how, where there was, again, opportunity, I think. And I think that's important. It can't just, you can't just kind of pick the goals and say, yeah, we're going to do this, this, and this. It has to be tied to your business in some way. So I think the notion that you're, that you as a company are going to be able to participate in all 17, it's a great aspiration, but what more likely you're going to see companies have two or three that they're going to really focus on. And I do believe that you will see them tied to some of the goals that come out this fall and maybe early next year. Um, the tricky part is that there hasn't really been a very good way to measure. Like the, the, these, this, you, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, also called the Global Goals, if you will. There's no like real metrics. Like right. what, that, that, that helps well, there's no that. metrics. And that's part of the issue is because companies need to be able to measure. Like, if you're gonna say you're doing this, and you, I mean, you don't want it to become greenwashing. You want it to be meaningful. Right. And so that's where there, a lot of them are, you know, in all fairness, a lot of the big companies that really feel that they should be participating, which they should, by the way, it is absolutely not going to happen without private sector investment. Yes. They, they're, they're still struggling with how do I prove this? Like, how do I prove I did something, you know, and it's very difficult for them. So until that happens, you know, the opportunity won't be as, uh, might not be, adopted as, as, as readily as it could be, but I do know that there are organizations that are working on trying to make that um, yeah. a, better, a better part of, of the world, if you will. There's mm -hmm. an organization called the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. There's also a, a US counterpart 
and they're both kind of working on on schemes and frameworks to help companies better yeah. better measure. My, my sense is we're going to hear more from technology companies. Again, I have the good fortune of you know being in rooms with uh, business. Right. And, and I'm hearing it more. So, uh, well, you mentioned Samsung, like Google this week um, right. talked about, about, right? So it's 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 going to make a, a better investment. In all 100% of made by Google products will include recycled materials by 2022. Okay, they're not saying how much, like what percentage. <laughs> okay, 100% of the products will have it, but eh, maybe it's 1%. I mean, so I mean, and and you know, but but what with respect. I think they will get more specific sure. when they figure out how they can be. Sure, I, I, Apple has been talking about this as well, right? They're, well, I mean, this, these circular, these circular models are, are really important, right? I mean, they're important. It's really about zero landfill waste. It's about circular development. It's about making sure everything has a life cycle coming back. It's about making sure you have the stuff to put in the stuff, right? Because if, if yes. you're if you're if you're losing that mining, you know, if that lithium goes away or that stuff is not there, then yeah. Get it. So yeah. <laughs> and more and more, there's expectation for companies that are champions of, let's say, the you know the SDGs that that they also practice radical transparency, that they speak to with specificity, you know, how are they improving education, how are they championing equality, how are they recycling, at what percentage in their new products. So I think more and more, I think society will demand that that it's not just talk. Um, well, I, so the, the, the Wall Street analysts have to demand it too, P.S. That's, right. that's part of the biggest issue is that you can't, you don't hear many companies talk about this on their quarterly earnings calls. And until that starts happening, I think the, the Wall Street thing is, is, a, is a challenge. The institutional investors are putting pressure on it, but ah, st we're still missing that part of it. Right. So, so, hey, so let's jump into that real quick last point, right? This GE BlackRock thing, mm -hmm. talking about Wall Street and other folks getting on solar and storage business, right? Isn't one of the biggest challenges with solar just capturing the energy? Like a lot of it just goes to waste. So, Well, I'm not an expert in the efficiency of solar panels, but what this particular uh, deal says to me, that you, you're, you mentioned um, this, there's a good green tech media story on it. It's um, GE GE's uh, solar group and BlackRock real assets, which I hadn't actually, like, ooh, that's cool. Real assets, yep. like, un, what are they not real? If they're, <laughs> what are the other assets? They're tangible, you can touch them. <laughs> like, so. um, but what makes this particular um, uh, relationship, if you will, interesting is that it's focused on distributed solar development. And that's actually the name of the company. There actually isn't even a GE in the name, is there? Or a BlackRock, which is kind no. of cool. It's called Distributed Solar Development, and it's meant to appeal to um, the companies and industrials and, and maybe the cities, by the way, that are looking for what, what they call the distributed solar plus energy storage, right? So, um, or microgrids or, you know, assets that make it energy resilient and, and so forth. And it's the idea that... Um, to go back to, to Superstorm Standy, it's the idea that when that happens, yeah. when, I remember, notice I said that when, because that's going to be a, an issue, it's when, that you want to have um, your own, you want to be resilient, you want to be independent, you want to be, uh, or, and you want to have a, a, the ability to make sure that the power stays on, and at the very least to run the emergency services in the area to make sure that communications stay up and so forth. So um, this plays into the, the whole distributed uh, assets that you see um, going up on on Whole Foods, uh, on you know Target, uh, Walmart, like all of the big 
uh, if you will, a lot of them food companies that have, or retailers that have lots of locations are using those locations as sort of hubs for community or thinking about them as hubs. Many of them put, have already put solar on it. Like, so, so a lot of at Walmart, I forget what the goal was, but there's oodles of Walmarts that have solar target. I think those, those are the like one and two, um, uh, lots of, um, Industrial warehouses have them. If you see, if you see, like so, so a lot of the co companies that have logistics capabilities have put them. Now, what they're looking to do is to put the storage in place. And what makes this deal interesting is that they're going to to own. So the BlackRock money helps them own this asset. So the 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 thing that that a community ha would have an issue doing is making that capital expense. And this helps turn it into an operational uh, opportunity, if you will. They can lease it potentially. Um, you're, they're basically allowing this thing to be built on their site and their real estate, and it. And they're not this. And they're also site. They're also um, digestible, if you will. Like they're not these multi megawatt power purchase agreements. And as a company, that's a little bit intimidating. Um, this allows smaller companies to kind of get in the act in a in a in a, in a way that's meaningful for them. Um, and it just good, gives another option for potentially investing in, um, in solar. Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much going on out there. And whenever you need to know what's happening, Heather is the person to talk to. <laughs> so we're here coast to coast with uh, Heather Clancy, editorial director at Green Biz Group. You can follow her at, on Twitter at Green Tech Lady. Um, and of course, catch the latest news of what's happening uh, in the world of green tech and what's happening in environment. And more importantly, what's happening in terms of these larger sustainability goals. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Heather. Bye. Have fun in Montana. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you, Heather. And, and for those of you following, make sure you get her book pitched down. You're on Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you if you get a chance, get the get Heather's book on Kindle, uh, niche down. Uh, her co-author Chris Lockett's also going to be on the show in a few weeks from now. So uh, definitely something to catch up on. So absolutely. And if you're a startup founder or obviously we have many uh, executives of Fortune 1000 that watch Disrupt TV. There are lots of events where Heather you know moderates and speaks uh, around the around the country regarding sustainability and, and innovation in that space. So please follow her at GreenBiz and her blogs and articles. And uh, it's a great opportunity for you to learn about how your company can stay viable by actually having sustainability as a core value. So that was episode 158, two extraordinary guests. Uh, and uh, next week we have episode 159. Our guests include Les Otolenghi, EVP CIO at Caesars Entertainment. Melanie Katzman, PhD author of, of Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. And uh, one of our favorites, Brian Fanzo, who's a speaker and change evangelist who will come and give us the Gen Z view of uh, <laughs> the fourth industrial revolution. Ray, final thoughts. Yeah, you know what? I, it is, it's really exciting what's going on out there. And, and what we're really seeing is not just the intersection of technologies, but the intersection of both monetization models and business models that are coming to bear, right? We used to go back five, 10 years ago, like in Tim's case, talk about, hey, it's an IoT project. And, and now today it's, it's IoT, it's AI, it's, it's a business model around water as a service, right? And, and, and that's really what's getting exciting, right? Digital transformation, it's still in its infancy, even though we started talking about this in 2009, 2010, uh, but, but we're just at the beginning of this revolution, just like cloud took about 10 to 20 years to take shape, 
we're in the same boat here with digital transformation. And when we start talking about a post-digital world and what's happening after that, it's going to be about networks and networks that are coming together. And that's what's really exciting. I mean, I've really seen these case studies. I mean, to me today, like talking to Tim, and we've been talking for the last seven years, you know, going through this whole journey that he's been putting, you know, that, that he's been like learning about, he's been sharing with everybody about, and he's been open. He's been open about it, about how to build this. And, and that's, it's just so rewarding to be able to see this, you know, six, seven years later, got a launch out, he's got customers, he's piloting, and, and, and that's just exciting. I don't know about you, Val, but that, that just gets me excited every day. Yeah, well, when I, I met Tim four years ago at uh, Constellation Connect Enterprise, uh, your conference, where three, 400 of the best and brightest CXOs get together and share. And Tim, four or five years ago, it may have been five years ago, um, at least four, talked about you know, using sensors to manage water flow uh, for both sustainability, efficiency, and, and, and energy savings. And I thought, wow, this guy is so far ahead of what businesses and companies are ready to do. And now, as you heard him mention, 30, 40 uh, hotels in the, just the Boston area are piloting his incredible innovation. So uh, November 4th through 7, you're gonna have Constellation Connect Enterprise again. What's the theme for this year and will you have uh, some of these BT500, uh, BT150 uh, innovators that you announced two weeks ago? Most of them are going to be at this conference. What are you going to talk about? What's the theme for this year's event? You know, the theme for this year's event is really taking us to the next level, really about insight exponential business models and really how we go from this post-digital divide to winner-takes-all networks. And we're seeing this happening right at the beginning, I mean, there is a massive gap between winners and losers, and you're seeing that too. These winner-takes-all markets are in play. How do we actually make sure that everyone has a chance to participate, and how do they know um, what their competitive advantage is based on their data that they bring, the insights that they bring, and these new networks that are actually emerging? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course, day one is talking about our cool technologies that are out there that are coming down the pike. We also have Alan Ballou, who's like one of the top economists in the world, he's going to be sharing his thoughts. We're inducting the suit, the you know, BT-150 on day one. Day two, we actually have Tom Peters as the keynote, and we'll be talking about business models. We're talking about industries. We also have our big Supernova Awards dinner. And then day three, with Annie McKees talking about leadership. We're going to go through uh, what leaders need to do to be successful in this new environment. That's awesome. You know, last time you and I talked to Tom Peters, we streamed our conversation and we've got 80,000 people that have watched that discussion. So I'm thrilled. I'm going to be there. And Tom Peters is uh, just Tom Peters alone is worth the ticket to the Constellation Enterprise Connect on November 4th through 7th. So if you're a CXO, it's, it's a must, uh, must uh, attend event of 2019. All right. My anything, friend. On your end? anything on your end, Vala? So. Uh, I'm going to Australia into this month, so I'm 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 looking forward to uh, meeting uh, you know uh, trailblazers on the other side of the world, and uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's the big big thing happening this month for me. I look forward to our show next week. We got again three extraordinary guests, and uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks everyone for watching. Bye everyone. Hey, thanks everyone. Take care.